Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together Bruce and I have written three dozen, well, we're writing the third of the three dozen, no, wait, wait. The 36th. Whatever. <laughs> anyway, we're writing that one right now of the three dozen cookbooks, including the book Vegetarian Dinner Parties that was nominated for James Beard Awards, that one International Association of Culinary Professional Awards. You should check out Vegetarian Dinner Parties. We are mm. not vegetarians, but mm. I do mm. believe it is the cookbook and which Bruce was at his absolute most creative in the kitchen. If That's you don't know, weird. Bruce is the chef and I, Mark, am the writer. We also have written the Instant Pot Bible, which does include vegetarian recipes, but is all about how to make the most out of every size of Instant Pot that you can buy. But our podcast today is a little bit about vegetarian food, but we want to start in a place that is near and dear to our hearts, which is the cookbook business. Mark said we wrote all these cookbooks, and we have, and most of them, not all, but most of them have come out in an ebook. And it's really interesting to think about ebooks as cookbooks. They are just not selling the way ebooks no. sell for novels. Now, let me tell you something uh, about this in case you don't know. Ebook sales grew and grew and grew over several years, especially with the introduction of Kindle and the Google Reader and other devices. Ebook sales grew like mad, but they have flattened. And in fact, hardcover sales are up in the book industry, and people seem at least the thought is that people seem to be heading back to paper. But one place that never really took off was cookbooks. And e-cookbooks never overwhelmed the industry the way hardcover and softcover cookbooks did. And I am a perfect example of this. I only read books on my iPad. I only read Kindle books. But when it comes to cookbooks... I only buy the real books. Mm. I see cookbooks mm. as something I want to sit and thumb through and go back and forth and search for a picture of something and cross-reference recipes. And I want that book in my hand. It gives me the feeling that I'm there with that chef who wrote that book. And I have never liked the idea of using an e-cookbook. Well, let's just say that is one of the reasons in the industry, and we can speak about this as insiders in the industry, that is one of the reasons people say that e-cookbooks did not take off the way e-novels and e-narrative nonfiction took off. And that is people seem to want the tactile experience of a cookbook. They seem to want to hold it in their hands. There's something connected to the way it feels in your hand with cooking food. There's something interrelated there. I couldn't begin to figure out the psychology of that, but at least it runs around the industry. And I should also tell you that the another reason that it is said inside of the publishing industry of why e-cookbooks didn't take off the way other e-books did is that, of course, it is messy to bring an mm. e-reader into the kitchen. I am not going to be taking a toothpick to get flour and grease <laughs> and gunk out from the edges of my iPad. It's just not going to happen. And also, oh, no. when when I read a book, um, I read a novel on my iPad, I can change the typeface. I can make it bigger or smaller. Like if I can't find my reading glasses, I can actually just make the type like huge so that I don't even need my glasses, even though it's one sentence per page. 
I can't, if I do that with a cookbook, it just messes up the whole recipe. And then you just can't like figure out what's going on. Right. And I think this is what it, I think a lot of people don't know. And I think this is what we can speak to. Cookbooks are designed objects. That is, we write a cookbook. Bruce tests all the recipes. He develops the recipes. He creates the recipes. We talk through them. We do tastings together. We talk through the recipes themselves. Eventually, I get all of his notes. I then write the book. We go back over the book together just to explain to you the entire process. Bruce, at that point, after he and I have gone back through the book together, Bruce signs off on the manuscript and we turn it in. At that point, while I have been working to write the manuscript, at that point, some of the real work really oh, sets yeah. in because now the book has to be designed. Cookbooks have to be laid out on a page. Think about a novel. I mean, yes, there are designers, of course, for novels. There are people who choose the font, people who choose what the chapter titles look like, people who choose what the title page, the cover designers. Of course, there are designers for novels. But there are all those things for cookbooks and more. And the more. art directors actually have to get a recipe onto a page so that it's readable. And that, for example, could include putting the ingredients on the left or right gutter, as it's called, the left or right side of the page with the instructions in the middle. Or it could be that the ingredients are double columned before the instructions. And then there's the problem of the photographs. Mm. So all of this is a constant problem. And then I get the book back from the designer and I will end up with pages and pages and pages that say either cut three lines here, cut four lines here, cut six lines here because it's running over the page and we don't want to have just four lines sitting up on the next empty page or add four lines, add a box, add more material here. This recipe looks short on the page. I get all of this from the designer, not my editor, but from the designer. So cookbooks are heavily designed objects. Interesting. You just said the way it looks on a page because the recipe is a thing. It's a thing of, of yep. beauty. It's a designed piece of art. Yep. You're never going to hear a novelist say, they told me to cut four lines because of the way it looked. Um, but in a no. recipe is very different. And for instance, in our Instant Pot and Air Fryer books, our photographs are all clumped together in inserts throughout the book. Right. But in the e-version, all those photos are just shoved to the end. And so I've gotten emails from people who've bought our e-books and they say, well, I don't like it. There are no photos. And you have to tell them, go look at the end because they're not in where they designed. And I was reading an article in Publishers Weekly by Mark Rotella. He's a cookbook editor there. And he says, when I see a new cookbook, it's rare that I find one that isn't really well designed. Mm. It's a whole mm. experience from cover to cover. And it's true. It is. And he claims people use cookbooks for different reasons. People like to flip through the books to get mm -hmm. ideas. Mm -hmm. Like they have an idea and in I mind. Always, and they want I want to add, wait, I always, when I pick up a new cookbook and Bruce is the chef again, and he always orders most of the cookbooks that come into our house. He'll see something and he'll order it and we'll get a cookbook. And I have to tell you that nine times at no, 99 mm -hmm. times out of 100, I start in the back and flip forward. Mm. I don't go in order when I look through a cookbook. I'll start in the back and I'll start flipping forward to figure out what's inside the book. Yeah. So there you go. That's a very different way. To, I don't flip backwards through a novel. No, well, you wouldn't really understand the flow <laughs> of the narrative. No. But in a cookbook, you're flipping through and I'm flipping through the book. 
for inspiration, to get ideas. And maybe I'll follow a recipe exactly, but mostly I want inspiration. Whereas when people have a specific dish in mind, a specific ingredient they have on hand, they don't run to their cookbook shelves and they don't flip through the indexes. Instead, they go online and they start to Google digital recipes. So it's a very different way of looking for recipes. Yeah, well, it is. And again, I just want to say that it is true that cookbooks, by and large, with the exception of the giant 900 recipe compiled cookbooks that don't have many photographs, those books are less designed than others. But most cookbooks are heavily designed. The step-by-step step book that we are publishing this October for all of the air fryer models from Instant Pot, the Omni and the Vortex, it was a, well, let's say hellacious design process because the design didn't work. We had problems with it. It caused the recipes to overrun so that only several lines would be on the next page. I didn't want to cut those lines. I didn't like the way certain things looked on the page. We fought that design for a long time, and it was a careful negotiation between the book designer, our publisher, and us. All those parties were involved in a constant negotiation of what that recipe finally looks like on the page. And it's a, a fraught process. And I think, well, I can tell you, I published a memoir, bookmarked, and I can tell you I never sat around and had a fraught conversation about how the memoir works. And let me say one more thing before we pass off this onto our one-minute cooking tip. If you don't know this, books are printed in 16-page segments. In the industry, 16 pages is called a signature. So the question is how many signatures does your book have? If you look at any book, take the number of pages and not just the page count but including all those unnumbered pages at the end and the beginning you'll find out that it is almost always divisible by 16 sometimes just by eight and if a novelist is asked to cut anything they're going to be asked to cut a signature to cut 16 pages out of their novel they're never really going to be asked to cut a line or two lines out of a novel Rarely. I mean, maybe somebody gets really obsessive about two lines hanging over on a page, but rarely. Can't the, type, can't the size of the font just fix that? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> and, the, and it's what's called the let, which is the distance between letters and between words. So the letting can also fix that. See, there's so much about publishing that's so weirdly insidery. What can I tell you? So let's get off that and not be insiders anymore. And let's say that we would much appreciate it if you would subscribe to this podcast, if you would would rate it even a simple comment like great podcast or lots of fun does wonders for our analytics we really appreciate that effort on your part because again as we've said a million times we are unsupported we're doing this for the sheer joy of doing it we love sitting here and talking with each other about food and about cookbooks and talking to you about it i wish that we could be around a table with I don't know, wine, beer, well, for me, it would be bourbon, wine, beer, bourbon, iced tea, whatever it is that you drink, then we could have this same conversation about how books get made. However, we can't, and we're doing the best we can. So up next, our one-minute cooking tip. 
get your spices away from your stove. Every time I walk into someone's house and I see the spices lined up on the back of the stove Mm -hmm. or on a shelf Mm -hmm. above the stove, Mm -hmm. it takes every ounce of Mm self-control I have, which isn't much to begin with, not to go over and just take them off and throw them away because they're probably useless. I think my great aunt Ruth, who looked like Grace Kelly, because everybody has a great aunt who looked like Grace Kelly, who's my age. Mine looks like gold in my (laughs) ear. My great aunts all looked like gold in my ear. I feel like I'm descending to a Philip Roth novel. <laughs> anyway, uh, my great aunt, who looked like Grace Kelly, kept her paprika on the back of the stove my entire life. As we call it, it was a red food coloring agent. It was no longer <laughs> barely even red. <laughs> yeah, the pink food coloring agent. Yeah, get your spices away from they the hot spots. They need to be away from the heat. They need to be in a cool, dark place. Yeah, and away from the light, too. Okay, up next... Okay, in this place, in our podcast, we usually have an interview with a cookbook author or someone in the food business. But in this episode of our podcast, we want to talk more about air frying. We are currently writing an air frying book, a step-by-step air frying book. And we want to talk about some of the things we've learned about air frying since air frying itself is becoming so popular. We've already written an air frying book, the Essential Air Fryer Cookbook, and we are writing another. Let's talk about air frying. So one of the things that I discovered in testing recipes for the new step-by-step air fryer Bible is that you can air fry hard-boiled eggs, and so they're not boiled, they're hard air fried eggs, and they are so easy, and they came out perfectly 225 degrees, 17 minutes, and then you drop them into cold water for five minutes before you peel them. They came out so perfectly I was undone. So to air fry an egg, you take a large egg, you set your air fryer on 225, you get it to temperature, mm-hmm. right? You put the just put the eggs right in there. Cold from the refrigerator. Cold My from the fridge. My timing is based on cold eggs. Cold from the fridge, 17 minutes at 225 Fahrenheit. Yep. Then you drop them in cold water for five minutes and yep. peel them. That's and that's it. the deal. And they're perfect. They are The yolks are totally cooked through. So they're not that translucent gel in the middle. But there's no green. So it's not there's ramen no worthy. It's not. If you want ramen worthy, then I'd probably, I haven't tested this, but my guess is I would probably cut it down to about 13 or 14 minutes. And I would check it at that point. Okay. Um, if you're making a lot, like you're making six or seven and you want them that way, try one first and test it and see what what you think okay so here's another thing that we know about air fryers that some people don't know and that is you can open these things as often as you like you know the old cookbook saw about don't open your oven because mm-hmm. the temperature drops by 50 degrees it does la 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 use the oven light to check on your cakes and blah 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 okay air fryers are tiny little things with incredibly powerful fans and incredibly powerful heating elements and yes the temperature does drop when you open the drawer but not much or open the door on a toaster oven style. So honestly, especially in the basket models where it's hard to see inside or sometimes impossible to see inside, open them up. Yep. And unlike a slow cooker where you have to add 30 minutes of time every time you open the lid of a slow cooker, you don't have to add any extra time when you open the drawer of the air fryer. Okay. Here's another thing. You might be tempted to brush your food with oil because you know you have to have a little bit of fat when you're cooking. Spray. Spray is a way to go. And if you don't like the idea of canned sprays, get yourself a spray pump. Now, if a recipe says to brush it, there'll be a reason it wants that. But usually... 
don't try and brush it. You're just going to yeah, brush I the mean, coating off. Bruce went to the to like Dollar General to some dollar store, and he bought a few little atomizer spray bottles, and he's put oil in them: garlic oil, olive oil, vegetable oil, and you know he uses these. He also, I will tell you, uses the aerosol cans too. But he uses these little atomizers and. They're great, but he's right. Why don't you brush your food? Because you can dislodge coatings, right? Mm-hmm, you can. So it's not only do it if your recipe tells you to. I think one of the things that a lot of people don't know about air fryers is that they are just terrific for reheating, especially, and this is my favorite thing to reheat in an air fryer, especially a supermarket rotisserie mm. chicken. <laughs> it's unbelievable. So you cut it up into pieces. Uh, poultry shears or kitchen shears work best, not knives. You cut off, let's say, the leg and thigh quarter. You put it in the 350-degree air fryer. You don't even have to heat it up. Just set it for 350. Put it in there. Well, what, seven minutes later, five yeah, minutes later? If you're, not re- if you're not heating it up first, you're talking maybe seven minutes. If you do heat it up first, maybe five minutes. It's yeah. really it comes out sizzly and juicy and yeah. hot. And the thing Perfect. about about rotisserie chickens from the supermarket, especially if you have them cold. I know Mark said to use a poultry shear, and you might need that to cut through the breastbone, but basically you could pull it apart with your hands. You, you could pull the leg quarter off. But you could separate the leg and the thigh. we discourage people from using their hands Best as tools in the kitchen. professionals. Best tools in the kitchen. Then please wash and dry your hands first. We will never tell you in a book to use your hands. It's also why I keep a box of latex surgical gloves in the kitchen. Yeah, and I can say that I even reheat pizza mm. in the air fryer. I put pieces of pizza in the air fryer, turn it on about 325, leave it, I don't know, three, four minutes, and the pizza is crunchy again on the bottom. It's perfect for reheating things. Okay, what else can you do? Keep it on your counter. Seriously, don't try and find a place for it because you will use this thing. Trust us. You tend to use appliances that are out. So keep it out. You will thank us. You will use it. You'll do everything in your air fryer. Yeah, and don't throw out the juices in the bottom of the drawer or if you're using a toaster oven style air fryer in the bottom of the pan that the rack is sitting on. There are all kinds of quote unquote rendered juices either in the bottom of that drawer or in that pan. You can skim the fat if you want and then you have essentially a sauce. I mean, you can you can whisk butter into that mm-hmm. if you want and make it richer. Honestly, we have discovered that it's just a fine meat dripping sauce it in is. the bottom. Sometimes a little teaspoon of acid, a little squeeze of lemon juice or balsamic vinegar mixed into that and just drizzle right. it over the steaks or the pork chops or the chicken breast or eat whatever you've cooked that gave off juice. It makes it that much better. That's right. So those are some great air frying tips that we have learned and that you may not know about. Air frying is becoming more and more popular. If you don't know, it is becoming one of the top Google food searches right now. Air fryers and air frying, which tells you that everybody is getting into the trend of air frying. And we can't agree more. We love our air fryers. Okay. Final segment of our podcast, Cooking with Bruce and Mark, traditionally is what's making us happy in food this week. And I'm going to start. What's making me happy in food this week are strawberries. They are in in New England. We are having a bumper crop year. We had a lot of moisture in late winter and in early spring, which made the strawberries super plump and juicy. We are just having a 
bumper crop year and we are going to farm stands around us, particularly shout out to Freund's and buying uh, fabulous strawberries. I can't seem to get enough of them. What's making me happy and don't at me and don't yell at me, but I am into the supermarket refrigerator section cold brew coffee. Oh, I'm yelling at you. Here's why. Until recently, all that canned and packaged coffee was sweetened and dairied, and it was like buying a milkshake in a can. But everyone is now selling just plain, dark, strong cold brew coffee. To be honest, to make one liter of cold brew coffee myself is about half a pound of coffee. And you know the price of coffee. It's very expensive. These are cost efficient. It's cheaper for me to buy that. It's there. It's ready to go. It's no mess. I recycle the container. I'm like, I'm into it. I I am disapproving only because as high-level cookbook authors, we should be making our own cold brew. So I'm disapproving. It's typical. Now, mind you, I don't make coffee even. So as the writer in our team, <laughs> I would never even make cold brew. I just want to aspire to the world in which I would make cold brew because otherwise I, I can't be bothered. So I just want to hawk you about that, but also say uh, I do see the packages in the refrigerator. So that's our podcast this week, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for being with us on this journey. We really appreciate you here with us. Thank you for doing that. You can check us out on social media under our own names on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. There is a Facebook group called Cooking with Bruce and Mark, which you are welcome, in fact, encouraged to join and join in the fun with us next time on the next episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark.